Welcome to The Link, the podcast that links the past to the present for those who went to high school in the 1980s. It is a perfect time to reflect and to take stock and to think about really fun parts of our past, but also some challenges. I get to see and hear all your amazing faces and a blast from the past, which is always super exciting, seeing who we were then, who we are now. We really didn't know what was going on in each other's lives very much. And so finding out the real scoop is incredibly rewarding. Welcome back to The Link. This is producer David Yaz of pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network here once again with the hosts of The Link, the graduates, all graduates, including me, by the way. Of the class of 1986, Milton Academy, Farah Pandit, Diana Donovan, and Meredith Zenner. Guys, what's Green up? Day. Hey. Hello. Hello. Another episode. Another episode. Yeah. We're excited. Almost in the can. And we're, <laughs> thank you. I mean, we, we're now a minute and 22 seconds in, and Farah hasn't told me that I have to delete, edit something out already. It's so amazing, it's a- <laughs> Dave. This is the first time in, in a long time. I, I'll be on alert. Don't worry. We're learning and growing. <laughs> we are, aren't we? Well, yes. we have an awesome, awesome guest that's awesome in every way, except Indeed. I was slightly better at basketball than him when we played together. <laughs> it's like the only thing I was slightly better at. And Diana is going to introduce this mystery guest now. You've just stolen my intro, but our next guest is an associate professor of law at Georgia State University. Now, this is a classmate who I think we all might have had different predictions about. He would go into politics. He would be headmaster of a school. He would discover or develop an important theory and write a book about it. When I think about our days at Milton, I remember him as someone who was uh, intellectually curious and incredibly friendly. He ended up going to law school, but he was not entirely satisfied with writing documents that nobody would read. (laughs) (laughs) So he kept seeking, and a little over a decade ago, he realized, we'll talk about his journey, but he realized that his life's work is all about disaster. And he's coming out with his third book. And of course, in case nobody has guessed right now, I'm talking about John Marshall. Welcome, John. Yay, welcome, John. Thank you for that great intro, Diana. And Diana, I have to add that Dave was better at a lot of things. He was much better at math. He was much better at science. He was much better in the li- in the library with Bark Feather. Bark didn't like, me, like Dave much more. But the paper football games we used well, to play. It's, a, it's amazing how we remember these things, right? And we're yeah. always comparing ourselves to others. So we're going to talk about that because because John, it seems like you have some you've got some things to dig into from the past that were in the notes that you shared with us. Ooh. Um, well, just things that happened at Milton that how yeah. feeling you don't measure up or whatever. Just little things where you're like. Did any of us feel like we measured up at Milton? No, no, no absolutely not. Farah's like, yes. <laughs> Farah's like, well, of course. Yeah. No, you know what? Let me just say this. One of the things you didn't say in your introduction, but it is so much a part of my experience at Milton, is that John and I were really very active in student government. And so we were consistently trying to herd cats, meaning our class, for morning assembly. And so, yes, exactly. (laughs) So we would stand up in front of the, the class and look out at all of you guys and just wonder to ourselves, how we got to this place and so well, yeah. exactly why i always thought he would go into politics like <laughs> it was just like in a leadership position being like i really you guys are driving me crazy but i have a big smile on my face hey <laughs> people meow meow can we settle down i don't know if 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 dave i think you joined a sophomore year meredith yes sophomore year i, I can't me? no freshman no year. i i was there all, since you the guys beginning. are all the way through okay good so i know i i do i do create an impeccable memory <laughs> Well, you then you'll understand all of these references. So, what I think maybe my very first—you just might not have noticed me until sophomore year. Meredith, being, everybody uh, notices you. Meredith, I'm not at all. I, I noticed you right away. It's okay. Continue your story. But after being promptly demoted from Nina Seidemann, God rest her soul, um, a great teacher um, and a, a really wonderful woman, Nina Seidemann's French two class. And Diana, you might have been in that class. I don't know, but I was in French. I think Sounds two. Familiar. 
demoted to 2-2, mm. and then promptly sent back to George Fernald's French one class. So I, I didn't feel at all like I should be kind of inferiority. Tell, <laughs> and I thought, I can Dommage. handle French one. I'm on top of this. I can compete. And so rushing into You remember class, every, every teacher, every class, every incredible. grade? Yeah, this oh. memory is something to... Oh, this is... It just... Milton was it was something. So I, I rushed in, Diana, to the classroom. George Fernald was in Forbes. So he was he was down in the basement, I think, first half of that freshman year, or, or certainly in Forbes. So he knew me. And and Michael Gitlitz. And yes. who else was late with me? But there were several of us that were late. Maybe Andrew MacArthur was even in the class. I don't know. It was a real cast of really interesting boy <laughs> characters. And in I come to the classroom. And across the table is Far Panda. <laughs> And Christian Fredrickson. And Both with angelic expressions. They were and angelic, matching turtlenecks. And looked beautiful and yes. so put together. Yes. And Mr. Fernald oh. had a hand out the first day. And then I saw Christian <laughs> Fredrickson pull out her three-hole punch from her binder that she had already made for him. Did it come out of a canvas oh. tote bag with whales on it? <laughs> yes, it I really did. <laughs> I am in oh, trouble. gosh, your memories. Oh, no, gosh. but the bad, the, the thing is, he's not exaggerating. He right. really did come in late yeah. all the time. And mm. I just remember rolling my eyes every oh. single time this happened, thinking, who is this guy and why can't he get his act together? Of and, course. And, and, and I was in trouble all year with Farah. That's where it all started. Well, Marsh, Marsh, uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead, to, your, to your failings and your struggles in French, I would say, quel dommage, except you probably don't know what that means because... Uh, <laughs> I don't know if anything's stuck. Or Tolkien. No, but John, you know what? One of the things Diana talked about in her introduction is sort of this long, windy road that you've taken from Milton on. And for me, watching sort of a very purpose, it looks like they don't connect, but in fact, there's a lot of connection. We would be really, all teasing aside, would be very interested in sort of hearing a little bit more about sort of the purpose part of your, your journey. Yeah, thanks for it. Well, I mean, each of us, I've, I've been privileged to keep up with everyone to some degree, less with Meredith and Diana, unfortunately, but that's why this call is great. I think that part of our great readings that we did, Diana, in our English classes, Milton, and then I went on to Notre Dame after Milton and had just a really great undergraduate education that I'll always be thankful for, which both had some good theology and philosophy in it. And I think we all have had different training or therapy like I have or counseling or something like that that's been helpful along the way. But I think Milton was helpful initially in thinking about the journey and that you kind of don't arrive. And I always hoped I would arrive. Arrived meaning finding work that I'd like to do, finding someone who would marry me, different things like that, being a dad, and then everything would be okay. And of course, it never is, not, not in the way that you imagine. The bar um, keeps getting higher. <laughs> the bar keeps, yeah, it keeps getting higher. And, and you have to enjoy um, the journey. And so the, everyone's journey, and one of the great lessons I think we've all learned, as one of my, my friends in New Orleans said, you never know the rocks that people are dragging around in their lives. You never want to have them take their rocks out of their pocket because they're going to have a lot more rocks than you do. And so we, each, we, have, we take our, our, our punches as we move through, but I've been incredibly fortunate. And it began really at Milton because... In, in a sense, I had no business being at Milton in this sense. I, I went to a choir school in Boston. I, I sang for my supper for four years, performed at Tanglewood, at Carnegie Hall, Symphony Hall, and great music education. But my dad, who was an architect, a struggling architect at that, had not a, two nickels to rub together to get me to Milton. And I was uh, originally going to go to Portsmouth Abbey, which is, is down in Rhode Island. His mom and dad were going to move to Florida and uh, David Grant and his wife and Mr. Burdick and Mr. Burdick's wife and Jim Haydick and Frank Millett, like they just cobbled together money to get me to Milton, right? And to give me scholarships, loans. I had loans at Milton, crazy for thinking about high school. And it was one-tenth of as expensive as it is now. But Milton was a, was a great gift. The friends I made, those in the call, all the folks that we've gotten to returned to getting in touch with this spring and it was it was transformative and opened it op- began to open doors that continue to open for me the rest of my life and so much about how that financial aid worked because i remember they were just starting to put that together in the early 80s 
and I don't know if that's too much to get into, but it would be really interesting to hear how the faculty brought that about. Yeah, well, it's interesting because I, I think it was there was an ad hoc element to it, Diana, in this, insofar as I was, I had paid my deposit at Portsmouth Abbey. I had a scholarship to go there. Music was the thing. It wasn't sports, Dave. That was for sure. But music was, I think, what made me interesting to, to a couple of schools. And so in the middle of the summer, it was probably July, that Mr. Millett called and said, we'd like you to come back down and and talk to us about how we can make it possible to have John here. And I, th- I credit Jim Hadek with really pushing that, pushing that. And so they, you know, mom and dad basically said what they needed, which was almost everything. Mm-hmm. And I think by that point in the f- summer, they just found the cash. They just found the money um, to make it possible. And I boarded. I was, I mean, they, so they really came out of pocket because I was a boarder because mom and dad were supposed to move to Florida that year. So I always felt like it was a great gift to be there. And I think that's why vividly freshman year, I remember the very, I remember the weather on that first day I walked into the French class bar, one of the top <laughs> classrooms in Ware Hall, sort of a balmy September afternoon that you get in New England and the windows were wide open. It would be public health and safety violation now. I could have jumped right out onto Center Street. But <laughs> Well, this, was, this explains your history of, of not feeling like you measured up because you felt you must have felt this increased pressure, like you had to be the sort of golden child that Jim Hayduck and whoever they all thought you would be. Yeah, good but point. the thing, but the yeah. thing is, he really was. I mean, I that's that's the amazing part. I mean, I think yeah. one of the things that John's being very humble about is that not only, I mean, you have an extraordinary story of how you got to Milton and the gift that it was, but you gave back. You gave back to communities across across the school. You were not just about the class of '86 and jumping in with both feet. You were looking around and seeing where you could be you could be valuable and whether it was what you were doing with singing or what you did in, in, in baseball. I mean, you, you made the most of your time at Milton, not for you, but for the community itself. So I, I want to say that because John, it, it was extraordinary to watch looking back on it now. I mean, we were kids, we were not understanding how, what it meant to be as active as you were, but you were very active. Thanks for Yeah. Well, I think the people, I, I strongly believe that you, there's so much, so this sort of from Dante Fortuna, just chance in life. And we had some great people in our class. It's hard as much as we remember some of the acrimony we, and, and in the classes around us, but there were some really good people and some really good faculty at Milton. And I've talked to people b- before and since who didn't have great experiences at Milton. And, and I don't know why, but I feel like the people that we met were, were really good people, even those who weren't as happy, Mickey Oyoki used to say, John, how can you smile in the morning when you come in for breakfast? He said, you remind well, me. We're going to be talking to him soon. We'll ask uh, him about well, that. <laughs> Mickey, make a virtual hug for me. I, I love what he does. And he, he gets to shape the character of young men and women and being a coach. And I love doing that about law school. And so, and Mick, I really admire BC coach at my alma mater for so long and, and did such a great job with so many young men there. But you did always have a smile on your face. I remember thinking the same thing. I was, I mean, I think I was relatively cheerful, but you were like Mr. Happy <laughs> and Mr. Friendly. There was, there wasn't, so I felt like I was fortunate to be there, but also I, you know, I had other siblings who went to huge Catholic high schools in Boston, decent athletes, but I never could have gone to Catholic Memorial or BC High or and participated in sports. I was 5'7", buck 40 in weight. And there I was, a steel Neil Keller out in the practice fields freshman year. And, and he had those experiences where he'd stop practice because there was a great blue herring on the pond there by the football field. Men, stop. And so those, those sort of moments, they were classic. That is an awesome Wait, wait a minute. How did he see the fish from the field? I don't understand. It's not a fish. <laughs> oh, a heron, you said? A oh. heron. Oh, oh okay. well, it sounded like you said right. herring. Yeah. I didn't articulate. You're right, Dave. A great blue heron, you know. <laughs> I get but, it now. You know, those, those, those kind of moments, and, and Dave and I had them on the field with our, with our coaches and at different times. So it was filled with moments like that that just made you chuckle. And then whether, and also, there, then there were the other less glamorous, but equally character forming moments, like being hung by my underwear by a nail, <laughs> the, Forbes, the Forbes TV room. That was... Oh, dear. <laughs> this sounds like, rip, is it, this is like upperclassmen's yeah. idea of fun. Oh, yeah. I think that's fun with the felony in the yeah. state of Massachusetts. <laughs> yeah. but, and then to get back at the seniors at the end of the year by 
buying chocolate X-Lax at the, what was the convenience store? Up Curtis. Curtis. Curtis Compact. Curtis. Yes. Walked up there. We got, we bought them out of chocolate X-Lax, brought it back. We got the warm knife. Someone came up with that. It must've been like, I don't know, Charles, Ted Holt, whoever was one of my, my creative classmates. And we did the warm knife over the top of the X-Lax so they wouldn't know. And then we went to the top floor and offered all the seniors chocolate X-Lax. Well, <laughs> they, then we took the toilet paper from oh. the bathroom. Oh. Yep. Yep. And then. Wow. Wait, why does, the, why does the warm knife the key? Explain that to me. Because it says X-Lax on the top. Those, but they were smart enough to read X-Lax. <laughs> it, oh, my God. Right. I, can't, I, can't, I can't wait to see what comes out. Some, like a whole new generation will be learning this. Oh, it's. It's terrible. I don't. I, I, who knows who came up with it? But so the 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 best part of it though was that we taken the toilet paper. The intended consequences occurred, and late on the very last, they waited to the very last night of school when we were all set to go home. Our parents were to come pick us up the next day, and probably around twelve thirty or one in in the dark of night, they came downstairs to the basement of Forbes. And they took us all out of our rooms and they dragged us up and down the hallways without our shirts on, on the carpet for a little bit of little carpet burn on our backs, just, just so we wouldn't forget to cross them again. But the story got out and this was, oh gosh, this was Mr. Foley. No, Mr. Ziliak's, Mr. Ziliak's. He was the housemaster. So he heard of this not soon, soon after we all woke up the next day. And so we were all brought into the Harding room at Forbes house. And he told us how ashamed and disappointed he was in all of us after a good year wow. and that our parents might be coming, but we weren't going anywhere until the end of the day. And uh, so everyone's parents were put out that we weren't able to leave because of the shenanigans we got involved in. But you know, those are, those are the stories that stick with your mind. The <laughs> yeah, you think? <laughs> oh my God, John, who, you know who, who, who all is... these years, I have never heard that story. That and who is, is the ringleader? Yeah, what? I want to know the ringleader. Who's the brainchild of this revenge? Brains behind the I, that's a So we may need to triangulate and talk to people like Michael Gillitz, who's very creative, as we know, in the arts. Um, <laughs> and uh, Charles might have some ideas as well. He may recall. And to the extent they say it was me, it is not true. <laughs> I was not that smart. I can um, see Charles being just, the, the Dr. Evil uh, character behind uh, the, the desk stroking a hairless cat. Hands dirty, is, though. But sorry, go ahead. No, of course. Sanitizer. One of the things that you said about carrying the rocks is, and is similar to one of the things my grandmother used to say. She used to say, if everybody hung their troubles yes. out like laundry... You would be the first to reel yours. Whenever you think, oh, I'm having such a struggle, and you just look around, you realize, okay, I can. So, John, that's really important because I actually think that's a a fundamental component of how you articulate what's going on in your life, John. You never never complain, and you always go forward. Can you talk to us a little bit about sort of your, your, I asked you a little bit about purpose, and I want to get back to that because I think it's, it's, I want to say it helps drive you in the direction you've gone, but I, those are my words, not yours. So tell us a little bit about what happened after Milton and, and your little journey. Do you want the Notre Dame fight song? Thank you, Dave. That, that, <laughs> it, that really brings him back. Goosebumps, little goosebumps in the back of my neck. I love to hear it. So yeah, for I, I think, so looking back and now, like I said, through counseling and other things over time, I think the family's had, my family had a great impact on me for better and for worse. I mean, it was all for better, but it was, there were rough spots we all have growing up. And I think so I was the child of merged family, my mom and my dad, my, my mom was widowed and had two kids and, and married my dad and, and my brother and I quickly came along and caused chaos. So I was a middle child in a family and just kind of making things work, getting along, helping smooth things over because there was a lot of conflict in a merged household between my mom and dad and and just the history of loss with my siblings. My dad lost his dad in an early age. And so it was interesting as a middle child, you want to make things work. You develop this, everything's good on top and from the outside. And you sort of keep those legs kicking. And another good quote, quote Mr. Garrity, who is one of the, the football coaches said, gosh, you always want to keep those legs moving. Never let them get to your legs. Just keep those legs moving and you'll be okay. And that was, again, out in the middle of practice fields. <laughs> And Wait, look, it's a heron. A heron, yeah, exactly. That's right. We were learning, we were, 
they were training us with our heads and our bodies. <laughs> but but the other it's way the middle ch- the other way the middle child can go is to just kind of disappear. I mean, it's really interesting how much you dug in there because I was also a middle child and I was like up in my room reading Latin. I wasn't helping anyone through anything. I was like. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's a, it, it's interesting. That's interesting, Diana, because I, I don't, I don't know. It's just I was trying to resolve conflict, and and whether it's between my mom and dad or my siblings or what have you, and and they were everyone was great, but you just do what you do as a child, and you make it work, and you don't realize how that influences as you grow older. And I, I raised this because I didn't leaving Milton. Diana hit the nail on the head. I always thought, and far knew this. We talked a lot about public service, and and we both went to Washington straight out of of undergrad, and I think we thought uh, we might. Well, we well, far certainly headed in that direction in a way that was un, sort of un, incredible and, and unprecedented. But I chose a different path because I realized pretty early on it wasn't the right path for me. But I wasn't finding exactly what it is that I wanted to do. And I the resonance that you have between the work that is the your da- makes helps you make your daily bread or bring your daily bread home, so to speak. It wasn't there. Yet I was raised by an idealistic, talented artist and architect who is sort of a Don Quixote type, tilting at windmills and and marvelously successful early in his career, but not so successful in terms of bringing home big paychecks, but continued to do really good work throughout his career. So, but he loved what he did. My mom loved what she did as a planner and as a teacher. And so I was surrounded by people who were really compelled by their work, validated by their work, enjoyed their work. And so I thought that's what I should be searching for. And I didn't find that in Washington when Far and I were there for a couple of years. I went off to University of Texas to pursue a master's degree in government because I thought maybe I just need to study this stuff a little bit more. <laughs> Beat my head against the wall a little bit. And as I left there, I, I received there were moments I think we all remember in our life when we get advice from people. And I've gotten some great advice along the way. And before I left Henry Waxman's office, I worked for Henry Waxman, a, a great legislator from California who retired only a few years ago after being in Congress for probably 40 years. But he had a large subcommittee staff of lawyers and they you know, sat me down and they said, you are making a mistake. You don't need to go to government grad school. You need to go to law school. If you want to change people's lives and you want to make an impact, you go ahead, do it, do what you will and have fun in Austin, Texas. That's a fun place, but you know, you really need to go to law school. And I said, Oh, thanks guys. I'll see you. I'm looking forward to drinking beer in Austin. And so I had a great time, two great, great years in Austin, but they were so right. I wasn't, I wasn't drawn to the work of being an, a political scientist and studying from the outside, the problems of, of the political community. So I decided to go to law school and Dave is a, a reform lawyer, and, and I'm sure other folks have sat for things like the LSAT and thought about being a lawyer. But I thought it was the next step to being a public servant and to giving back in Florida, which was then my family state from my dad's whole life, but since high, since high school. I went to a great state law school, made wonderful people. And as life will have it, have it, Diana, sort of back to your theme of just having conversations with people. I think that's I always saw my parents do that. They were always open to conversation and exchange. And one time my civil procedure teacher made a lecture optional, which that's ridiculous. Never make anything optional. No one's going to come. But a few of us showed up to a talk by a federal judge and named Elizabeth Jenkins. And she was very kind and very nice. And I chatted with her after her talk. And she said, John, why don't you send me your resume if you're interested in clerking after law school? Well, I had no business getting a federal clerkship because my grades were not very good. In the first year of law school. It's not all about the grades, John. This is amazing to me. Listening to you talk, it sounds like you've got these guardian angels following you throughout your life because these people want to take care of you because they see something in you that you don't see. Thanks, Dinah. Well, that's that's, that's very kind, but... I was, I was lucky, and, and the irony gets even richer because my law school professor who taught civil procedure and this judge went to law school, and I did terribly in civil procedure, and she wanted a recommendation letter from my civil procedure pr- professor, and I, I thought, there's no way I'm getting this job, because Mary Twitchell knows that she gave me a C plus and C pro, and so this was third year. Mary Twitchell forgot what she gave me, and she wrote me a wonderful recommendation because we kept in touch, and you like to talk like about. I said, guardian angel. Yeah, yeah. So I, I was I was lucky. So I I ended up in Tampa, Florida. That clerkship opened the door to an offer from a big firm that was a Holland and Knight, which is a firm that Chris Perry was at, and 
Adam Bookbinder was at for a while, and and Dave knows well from all of his days overseeing the legal community from a journalistic perspective in the way in a wonderful way that he did in Boston. Um, so great place to learn how to be a lawyer. But it didn't take me long to learn that I didn't want to be a lawyer, unfortunately. And I spent a lot of time alone. There were I talked to Farah. Farah and I kept in close touch, and it would be New Year's Eve, Christmas Eve. Michael Gitlitz's wedding. <laughs> Thank you, John, for raising that too. Yes, yes. You anytime, anytime. And I was up alone, 40th floor, um, you know, drafting reply briefs and response briefs. And, and it was, it was for me, intellectually stimulated, but personally miserable. And I thought there's got to be something different than this. And the one thing I was enjoying, I had spent a summer running our office's summer associate program, and, and I was on the writing committee and so reviewing young lawyers writing and I loved working with young lawyers and I loved mentoring young lawyers. And even though I wasn't necessarily happy, I liked talking to them about the practice of law and, and the work. And, um, and I thought, hmm, maybe, you know, there's something to teaching, but teaching is a hard road in any field. And in law, it's, it, it's pretty, it's pretty closed and narrow pathway to being a professor at a law school. So I, I began exploring it by reaching back to my, my college, my law school professors and they said, John, well, the first thing you need to do is sort of cleanse your resume of your public law school degree because it's very hard to get a job as a law school professor if you haven't gone to Harvard, Yale, Stanford, Chicago. There are a small group of schools that supply 75% of U.S. law professors. So at about that time, I was looking for opportunities, and I had moved from litigation to land use and urban development because my dad's work uh, in historic preservation and architecture, there was a, a, a component of it, which was about historic preservation, urban redevelopment, et cetera. And he loved that work. And I always saw cities as places of great hope and fun and, and interest and exchange and diversity. And that's just how we were raised in the family. And he traipsed us through cities all across the country when we were growing up in the station wagon as we drove around. So I thought, I want to do urban redevelopment work, but no one would hire me. They're like, you're a lawyer. What do you know about development? So Late one night, I'll never forget, it was in the spring of 2007. This is a year and a half after Hurricane Katrina. I saw the University of Pennsylvania, Dave's alma mater, in a great oh, school, quick. had a, a program that they had gotten money from the Rockefeller Foundation to run called the Center for Urban Redevelopment Excellence. And the Rockefeller Foundation was going to create a cohort of fellows to go to New Orleans to help staff up the city following Katrina because famously, everyone had turned out the lights and left the city. It was a city that literally died immediately after Katrina and then only, you know, slowly is but steadily, of course, repopulated. But they needed a lot of mid-career professionals to go and, and help out with recovery-related projects. So I worked feverishly on that application and had a couple of interviews and then heard nothing for months. And then I think Far and Dave probably know this story, but, you know, late one Friday afternoon at like six o'clock, I get a call on my office phone and there's a New Orleans area code and I thought, who is this telemarketer? And I pick it up and it's the real estate director of the New Orleans Redevelopment Authority. And he said, John, are you still interested in coming to New Orleans to work? And I said, yes. Thinking in my mind, yes, for a bowl of dog food and a dog bed. I would move there. Um, so he said, can you come Monday morning? And, um, I said, I can make it Monday morning. I'll do whatever you want, basically. I, and the subtext was there. Wait, what day was this? A Friday. This is a Friday evening. At 6 p.m. There goes the weekend. So he said, well, we've got a battery of interviews lined up for you between oh. you know, 10 and 2. And he said, here's the catch. We need to know by 5 p.m. Monday if you're going to take the job because the Rockefeller Foundation is going to pull the funding for this. And so we have to have your commitment what? by the end of the day. Monday. So in the last Whoa. year, I think- No pressure. I become partner at a law firm. I, things were actually looking better in a lot of respects in Tampa, and 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 I like Tampa, and and there were a lot of there, I saw options opening, and so that gave me some pause. But I thought, let's this is a trip to New Orleans. What can go wrong? And, and had you been there before? I had been. My college roommate was from there, Diana, but I'd never okay. really spent any time there. But when I walked out, well, first of all, New Orleans two years after Katrina looked mm -hmm. like New Orleans the day after Katrina. It looked horrible. Oh. But I smell in the air and just being in the city, I knew I was at home right away and I would have done anything. Like I just said, I would have worked for dog food to go there and, and do the work that I got to do for the redevelopment authority. So Diana, all the way back to your question, serendipity, chance, but Guardian it, goes angels. Back to, 
Goes, right. Angels goes back to Coach Coach Garrity, though. Keep those feet moving, Marsh. Don't stop yeah, moving. You got to add the Boston accent. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I missed it that time. Yeah, like, keep those feet moving, Marsh. Keep those feet moving. <laughs> Very yeah, and good. It's, Thank you. And it's so true. It's a, it's a great. That's a great. Was a great piece of advice. And and just remain. And then sports. You know, Dave talked about the sports side of things. At Notre Dame, I had a great baseball coach. I never played. I sat on the bench. I, I was made fun of, scoffed at. He called me the NCAA's FBI agent because I must be there to spy on the program because I certainly <laughs> wasn't good enough to be playing in it. And but, I can imagine you would just laugh it off like, ha, 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 in that John Marshall <laughs> way. Yeah. And they're like, ooh, this must be, we maybe we're onto something. <laughs> he taught me, he said, he taught me four things, Diana. He said, he, he for pitchers, he said, listen, you've got to have determination to get the job done. I mean, he said, get the out because that's what the pitcher's supposed to do. Get the job done within the rules. However you do, but you are not going to quit. You're going to get the job done. You have to have a plan to do it. So nothing is haphazard. Everything is planned out and thoughtful. You've got to remain positive and, and remain mature at all times. And I've always, that guidance that, that I received as a, as a bench warming college athlete for one year before I was probably cut the next year when the next person who could chew gum and walk <laughs> at the same time was put on the team. Well, you're, you are being very humble. Notre Dame's Division One. Uh, baseball right it is yeah, yeah and listen it was i was like again diana I, like diana said i was in the right place at the right time <laughs> like what i remember about john's baseball career is we were both kind of okay freshman year by senior year i was terrible i i just <laughs> i just i was on the team to go to the spring training florida trip that's pretty much why i wanted to be on the team and, like and marsh marsh well that's true but but Marsh turned into the one of the best pitchers in the ISL. He he was just your progress. Marsh was amazing, and and you could hit too. I was I was impressed. So I'm not surprised Notre Dame kept you on the squad for a while at least. Well, it was it was thanks, Dave. Thanks. It was it was I sports is a, a one of those great gifts in life, just like the classroom. But my best a great classroom education in, in Milton and, and at Notre Dame. But I learned so much in the sports field and. And that just goes well, back you, to yeah. And sorry to interrupt you, but I think I kind of know when you go to Milton Academy, the the coaches they may be very good coaches. They're also very smart people because they're also teaching yeah. at Milton Academy. So <laughs> we we you, so you did get just these thoughtful speeches. I remember Tom Tom Flaherty just with the that gaze and just it, it, everything he said seemed to be sort of wise. And then you get Marsh. You'll finally remember Guy Hughes and just his eccentricities and. Yes, that was very sad when I heard he passed away. But yes. that, that that was, well, I think, what was different about Milton is it, clearly you were going to get a smart coach, and that could go either way. But usually it went pretty well. Well, yeah, that and I only passed uh, Diana. Were we? Would you? I don't know if we were in Algebra two freshman year. Again, no business <laughs> taking Algebra two. But Bisbee's dear dad, Tom Bisbee, I, I'm sure only passed me because he was the baseball coach of our freshman team. <laughs> And I passed by the skin of my chinny chin chin, thanks to the kindness and generosity of Tom Bisbee. Yeah. Hi, this is David Yaz, producer of The Link Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, we hope you consider supporting us with a contribution through Patreon. The Link is a labor of love for us, but there are production costs attached to creating a quality show. And you can help us by visiting patreon.com slash the link podcast. We have some cool ways of thanking you for your support, including T-shirts, mugs, and shout-outs on the show. You can do us a solid for as little as $5 a month, and we will continue to bring you great conversations that foster the bonds of our high school class and beyond. Once again, please visit patreon.com slash the link podcast. Now, back to the show. John, what are you doing now? Yeah, what, what, what are you doing you're doing now? in the classroom now? Yeah, great. So... New Orleans lasted for four years, and really, I envisioned staying there for the rest of my life. As far as I, I love being in New Orleans, I love the people, I loved the food, I loved the architecture, everything about it. It was really a city. It's still, I consider it the home of my heart, and, and as much as I'm enjoying Atlanta, and I've, I've found my life in Atlanta in a sense. But it was, it became for me a, an awakening of sorts, right? Because I think I understood more how privileged I was, not just in the Milton sense of like, wow, I was lucky to get a scholarship to Milton, but to see true hardship, true poverty in a way that I hadn't seen it in the U.S., it, both in a post-disaster context, but also in a city which had has always had some of the highest poverty levels in the U.S. 
And I, the, the challenge of working for an agency that was supposed to help out, and we did kind of help out, but I, I really think I learned more from the people that we served than I did from the work that I did. So the story, uh, so far, I went on to teaching, obviously, but sort of how I got there, I think was really the, I was forced to be introspective about exactly what I was doing and why I was doing it. So one of the very first months that I was in New Orleans, it felt like it happened right away, but the executive director sent me to a community meeting in the Lower Ninth Ward. And it was the only thing rebuilt at that time in the Lower Ninth Ward were church sanctuaries because they were insured. And so there was money to rebuild the churches, but all the houses, as you guys know, had been completely wiped off their foundations. Anything near the, the industrial canal where that had failed, all the, the force of the water just blew the houses right off their foundations. And then throughout the rest of the, of the Ninth Ward, the Army Corps of Engineers had bulldozed a lot of the houses because they were all knocked off in one way or off their foundations. So there was no place to live in the Lower Ninth Ward, really, unless you're right up by the river on higher ground. But I was... The white guy, a little, I, I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know how to pronounce the street name of the church because it was a, a French name. Dave, never good with the French, had a <laughs> good, good with the French. But I walked in there, I was there to hear their thoughts and tell them our thoughts about redevelopment in the Lower Ninth Ward. And you can just imagine this white guy, not from New Orleans, coming into their neighborhood where they lost almost 100 of their fellow Ninth Ward residents, brothers, sisters, cousins. And there wasn't a smile that was cracked in, in the evening. And and afterward, one of the elderly women pulled me aside. She said, Mr. Marshall, before you come here again, you at least have to know how to pronounce the street name. Yeah. And so that's all she said. And, and I took that to mean, listen, you, buddy, you, you've got some business coming here. And your agency has some business coming here telling us what you're going to do. Um, especially when you don't even know the city or know our neighborhood. And I, I learned, right, as, as I think we all do in the work that we do, that in order to help people, you've got to walk with them and journey with them. And for me, as a lawyer who thought it, after nine or 10 years out of law school, I thought I can solve, I can draft a document to beat demand. I can um, employ legal solutions to help these people. But that's not how it goes. And that's not what people are ready to hear they want you to be their partner and they want you to walk with them. And, and that experience of what it meant to be, and I had a great mentor, James Joseph, who was the first U.S. ambassador to South Africa. And he was at that time head of the Louisiana Disaster Recovery Foundation, which Presidents Clinton Bush had helped fund after Katrina. And he said, John, you've got to be a servant leader. I mean, there's not, you can only lead by serving the people in the community. And that means being with them in the trenches. And over the next four years, the best part of my life was going into people's homes you know, with enough room to be have my back to their fireplace because so many people had driven from out of town to hear about what the plans would be potentially and the money that would be available to help them redevelop their corner grocery store and dry cleaner and coffee shop and new streetlights and whatever, what have you. But there was such interest of citizens and such commitment by the citizens of New Orleans to come home to recreate their community. And that determination and drive really educated me. And then the change in administrations, Mayor Nagan, as we know, is in at Club Fed for his the things that he did that we were I was really unaware of. And then Mitch Landry came in and you're a little bit persona non grata at that time because you were associated with the past administration and I saw the handwriting in the wall. How did you, uh, I just have a question about how did you forge those connections with the people? How did you establish trust? With- yeah, well, so that was uh, always, uh, so always a, a work in progress, Diana. But, you know, not for just for me, but for every other person on staff. And at, certainly our board that controlled the redevelopment authority pushed this. But I was lucky in the sense that I, though I was a lawyer, I was asked to go out and do community meetings. So I did about 45 of them throughout the city and almost not every other neighborhood in the city. And so I really got to know people. And then I was their point of contact. And so I was the person that they would call. Community. Community. So the in, in, in New Orleans, community would mean neighborhood. Like, oh, I'm from the Lower Nine or okay. from, I'm from Mid-City or what have you. Community would mean neighborhood or high school that you went to, that, that sort of 
that's what community would mean. But then largely, I'm from the Orleans, that, that sense of that identity of being a New Orleanian. But I was able to go out and have these meetings, Diana, and become a point of contact. And so when things didn't go right, I would get in my car and go out to their house and talk to them. And when they couldn't come in to close, you know, on purchase of a property, bringing documents out for them to sign at their house. And then your name gets out and other people call you because you'll get something done. And, and I credit being a lawyer with that. You just, you, I, I dropped a lot of balls. I made a lot of mistakes, but one of the things that I think Dave can say law school tries to teach you is thinking about the details, thinking about taking care of your clients. And that was great training for the work of urban redevelopment. But it was develop- It was personal relationships. Diana was showing up when you said you were going to show up. It was doing what you said you were going to do, even if you were utterly failing in what you were trying to do, but not forgetting people because FEMA had forgotten people. The state of Louisiana had forgotten people. They wanted to know that they were a priority and that you remembered them. And along this way, whether it was Penn or Diana at Harvard or Northwestern, we had Smith College, we had students from every school in the country that you can think of giving us free labor at the Redevelopment Authority. And it was basically free beer if you'll come and spend a semester with us. We'll feed you. I had, they brought them to my house for <laughs> know dinner. Know your market. <laughs> go out, exactly. Go out for, for food. And, and we had students from across the country come to New Orleans. And I ran the internship program, specifically a legal internship and planning internship program. Penn, again, David, was great. We had great Penn students who came. Uh, a bunch By the of way, I went to Brown, not Harvard. Oh, <laughs> right. That's right. Well, that's, that's okay. difference. we had great Brown alumni as well. Like I said, we were, we were, I just had to come to your house for the apple pie. Let, let, let's just no. put it out on the table. John, John is a great cook. cook. Do you make a good apple pie? He makes a great <sighs> apple pie. I love apple pie. Really pie. No wonder. No yeah. wonder. Okay. It's, it's um, all, it's all about that. But John, in all of this conversation about learning how to listen and how to build trust within communities. We go back to the the introduction that Diana put forward around service and public service, and you are only 53 as of a couple of weeks ago. So I'd like to know whether or not public service is in your future. No, I really like teaching for, I think my service will be teaching young men and women and being available to them and helping be a ladder, a rung of a ladder on which they can stand to state of Georgia. God knows needs all the good public servants that you can get. Until the guardian angel shows up. (laughs) Well, I, Diana, just as another lesson for (laughs) that, I learned in life in getting to Georgia state, I'll just say before I'll get back to your question, but to teach here, well, one with first of all, getting to Yale, that was, I applied and was, they didn't take me for the fellowship I got at Yale to teach for two years. They said they weren't interested. And, and again, same situation. I got a call in late April. and Six o'clock on a Friday night. Basically. <laughs> you need to night. move here in <laughs> yeah. 16 hours. Yeah, it was, it was similar. It's, it's just it's chance, right? They had offered, been offered to a woman who couldn't take the job. job. It turned out most other people they had offered the job to had already taken jobs elsewhere. And so I was like the last man standing, the last single man who could move to any place in the country, basically. (laughs) And so that took me to New Haven for two years. That opened up all sorts of doors. And then with Georgia State, which was an ideal school for me in the middle of a city, predominantly, well, the the university itself graduates more African-Americans than any other school in the United States for a four-year college. But the the law school itself is, is... wonderfully representative, not as much as we'd like it to be, but very representative. So they had an opening at Georgia State, Diana, for someone to run their securities law clinical program. It was an arbitration, securities arbitration clinic. And they had reviewed my resume and they had seen that I did some class action defense work in securities in my younger years. And so they interviewed me and I wasn't going to take the interview, but one of the professors at Yale, who was the advisor to folks in the job market said, John, have the conversation, talk to yeah, that's What good a advice. great piece of advice, right? And here I, I thought I knew everything, but that nothing little piece of advice, nothing because I was going to be nice, Diana. I was going to call him and say, listen, you don't really want to talk to me. I don't this know. It's a waste of your time. <laughs> he said, have the conversation. And I had the conversation. It was great. I gave them ideas about how they could run this new clinic um, because I had been a clinician at, in those two years at Yale. 
And so they called me two weeks later. They said, we have an environmental law job. Would you be interested? And so I said, wow. yeah, I'd be interested. So I, yeah, you know, let slowly. me think about it. So it's, so life being open to, and not being discouraged. Like I said, I've, I've been told no and not gotten a lot of positions that like we all have, I think. And I've just been lucky enough that things have. Um, I was an actor, so no. Oh, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> never, no. never, oh. ever rejected. Do we get to get, do we get a quick question on how you met your wife and ended up yes. becoming a father at 53 to a three-year-old? Oh right? yeah. So online, eHarmony.com. Um, and be, all because uh, Dave knows my brother, younger brother, Jim. And I had had no luck online for months. I, I couldn't, I, I tried to get the Dave Yass pictures, put them in my profile. <laughs> see it. They, they worked out, uh, but I went to Portland, Maine. I hope that bookcase wasn't in your profile picture because that's a little intimidating. <laughs> that's great. The fish, the fish <laughs> is to be a lawyer. And, and, and so Dave, I don't know if the story far knows it, but I went to visit my little brother, Jim, in Portland, Maine, and he was married with two kids and they were always trying to find a way to get me married and make me settle down and have a happy life, et cetera. And so I had my profile open on my laptop. And so Jim said, let me see that. Give that to me. <laughs> Somebody so rewrote it. He took, he took my profile, Diana, and he said, John, you didn't check the box that you'd like dogs? Are you kidding? You're not gonna <laughs> one. That's the so box. He, he checked boxes. He added a, a flourish here. A we flourish. need to optimize this. Oh, I love it. That was on a Friday night. On Sunday, I was randomly matched by eHarmony with Whitney, my wife. Wow. Um, and I probably who owned two dogs, you know, had owner of two dogs. Perfect. And so the rest was history. So we met in late 2015 and, and we married in April. Of- Did she call you on the dog thing? Was she like, wait, you don't even know what to do with this dog? So I have a question. I have a question. This is my question. So what would yourself now tell yourself at Milton and then what would your Milton self think of where you are now? Oh gosh. So I think myself now, this sounds really idealistic Meredith, but is to have faith and to to open your heart and love and not be afraid to love and not just people, but love, (laughs) truly love these because it's really what I've learned along the way. That's important that I want myself to know is that the only way things happen, whether it's redevelopment in New Orleans whether it's helping a student perform better is opening up their hearts and making them come alive. And so that sort of, it's took me quite a journey to get there, Meredith, because I think I protected myself a lot of ways and built, you know, layers around myself and I still have them, but the more I become genuine and authentic, the, the better I feel. And it's still a challenge. I, I'm always up and down on that. And so I think myself at Milton would be a little surprised. Well, I don't know. I think you would be a little surprised because I think I would have ended up where Farah thought. I really thought that maybe I'd be a city councilman or a a state legislator, a member of Congress or something like that. But I'm not, I do not miss that. I'm so happy I'm not doing that. Um, So your Milton self would, and it would be also, I mean, with the kid and the wife and all that you've accomplished, how would your Milton self? Yeah, but it never happened on the timeline. I think, well, the other thing is Meredith, thank God I can't write my own script because I would have married through other women I would have I would have made all sorts of mistakes along the way that I don't know how I didn't wind up making. What would have I, I realize now would have been mistakes, but Lord help us. It's because you always consult the council. John Marshall consults the wise council, uh, including yeah. Farah. Farah, that's right. Farah is the key. You want Farah on retainer in your life. Always, hundred percent. She's she's your golden call. <laughs> I didn't charge him either. It's, it's ever since my, my the, ever since that's that the only class. mistake you made. Wouldn't you love Not to hear? Good. Wouldn't you love to hear the actual conversation of Young Marsh talking to oh. Old Marsh and Young Marsh saying, "So are are you uh, a senator or someone in politics?" No, actually, I decided I really didn't want to do that. Oh, well, that's okay. I'm sure you, I mean, I mean, the, the neither Marsh could be upset with either of the other. The, right. <laughs> big yeah. smile, big smile. Like, oh, well, I'm sure you know what you're doing. Right. Exactly. Well, not, not entirely, but. Well, so I want to just say as, as the person looking at and listening to the, to the answers here, you are far from done, John. And, yeah. and I know and that 
this passion that you have to to serve your community, whether it's students or a New Orleans or a whatever it happens to be, will be with you always. And so I'm really looking forward to seeing how you how you transform that. And even if it's a mini sabbatical somewhere in which you're tasting something different, even if it's an appointment in some future administration for a little time or a fellowship of some sort in which you are exploring your services to is to something much bigger than yourself. And you've transformed so many communities and it's been wonderful to watch. So John, keep how, doing how, what you are doing. John, how can you pe- should, people get in touch oh, with you? Sorry, Diane, I will let yeah, you ask you I was, was going to do the same thing. I was just okay. going to ask you about your upcoming books and anything you want to sort of promote yeah. so, for the audience. Plug. Uh, best way, Davis, or the easiest way uh, is just going to the Georgia State University Law School website. And my email address is jmarshall32 at gsu.edu, jmarshall32 at gsu.edu. And then my, my Gmail address, jtravismarshall, jtravismarshall at gmail.com. Or you can call me on my New Orleans phone number, 504-931-2000, 504-931-2000. You're going to be getting a lot of telemarketers. Oh, John. Yeah, no kidding. Let, let's, let's cut that little let's part out. That part. <laughs> let's cut No, you should give out your phone number. Don't, we have a very select elite audience. Oh, yes. Don't you know that? We, 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 right. we do. We do. Oh, we do. And we're in control of that. But, John, we need you to, to advertise to, to your students that you are on the link, talking about oh, wisdom yeah. yes. from your past. I think that they will learn a lot as did we they'll ask you to sing for them they'll be like we didn't know you had a musical past to like (laughs) sing us something and to any of john's students who are listening he's getting his ass kicked in fantasy baseball what the hell marsh (laughs) you're not paying attention let me i can sing dave a couple of uh, bars from a ditty about sharon i sounds good this comes from the credit chorus with mr mr haduck Mm -hmm. and this always makes me think of Julianne Ward, who we all know and love. And Julie was from Sharon. Yes. And we, and, and Meredith's from Sharon. That's yeah, right. yeah, let's bring it on for Sharon. Sharon. So when we went to Romania sophomore year with the credit chorus, there was one piece that we sang called, I am the Rose of Sharon. And so, and Mr. Hiddick in his falsetto voice would always say, Julian Ward, this is your song. <laughs> and, uh, and it went, he had uh, a great falsetto voice. Oh, he had a great, he was, he was so funny. But I am the Rose of Sharon and the Lily of the Valley. I am the Rose of Sharon and the Lily of the Valley. <laughs> so there you go. Yeah. That's, that's for sure. That is excellent. Thank you. Standing ovation. The crowd goes yeah. wild. That was great, Marsh. I love that. <laughs> I, I was only glee level, glee club level uh, pipes myself. So, but I do remember Mr. Hader. So we are up against the clock. Anything else for Marsh? Anything? No. Am I allowed to close the show now, Meredith? I usually. Yes. Okay. She always has to get the last word. She just did. Yes. Um, thank you so thank much, you guys. <laughs> thank you, Marsh. Thank you. Don't go yet. I have to close the show. This is ceremony. Okay. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We remind all of you, if you want to support this show, go to our Patreon page. You can find all the information at pod617.com slash link. Please subscribe to us. Support us. Support us. Come on. We're making making art here, people. And and, uh, you can find the link anywhere you find your podcast. Thank you for listening on behalf of the entire link cast and crew. Thank you for listening to The Link. See you next time.